It's Monday, June 28th. From the Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Today, we have an interview with Liz Economy. She's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and a senior fellow of China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also the author of several books, most recently, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. Today, we're going to talk about China's second revolution, its third revolution, and the country's outlook going forward. Liz, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great to be here, John. As I said to you in an email earlier today, the idea of the News Items podcast is to help listeners better understand big things, and it would be hard to think of a bigger thing than modern-day China. Its emergence as an economic superpower, its global ambitions, its daunting challenges, etc. Happily enough, you're an expert on this subject, and I thought what we would do today is look at China through your eyes, beginning with your book, published in 2018, entitled The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State which, by the way, I highly recommend to our listeners. Most of us have a basic understanding of the first revolution and its key moments, but I'm not sure that we do understand what you describe as the second revolution, so I was hoping you could walk us through that. Sure. So the second revolution, which was actually termed the second revolution by uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, began really when he came to power in the late 1970s. And in many respects, it was about changing virtually everything about the way that China was governed uh, from the first revolution, which was the, the Maoist period. And that meant that Deng Xiaoping sort of moved away from the one-man authoritarian form of leadership that Mao Zedong had instituted to a much more collective and consensus-based leadership. He introduced the market into China, both in terms of uh, the marketplace of ideas, and also, of course, the market in terms of capital. He welcomed the international community into China. You know, he thought that China had a lot to learn from the outside world. And of course, an enormous amount of uh, capital came in from international players, especially overseas Chinese, that helped China to grow. And then finally, Deng Xiaoping maintained a low profile foreign policy. He believed that he wanted a peaceful external environment so that he could focus on growing China domestically. So it was really a transformative period that moved away from uh, the tumult of the Maoist period, sort of cult of personality that had developed around Mao Zedong, uh, the very heavy hand of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, That was something else that Deng did. He sort of brought the Chinese Communist Party out a little bit of uh, intruding into everyday life of the Chinese people and the Chinese economy. So he really transformed the way that China did business, both at home and abroad. And how long, you know, was that period, roughly speaking, obviously? Yeah, that period lasted, you know, almost 30 years, a little more than that from, you know, his tenure through to that of uh, Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao, really until the advent of Xi Jinping in 2012, uh, which was when Xi Jinping was selected as General Secretary of the Communist Party in, in November. This, of course, brings us to the third revolution, which struck some as unlikely and others as sort of inevitable. I don't think prior to his ascension that most people would have said Xi Jinping would be a revolutionary leader, Uh, but here we are. 
What are the keys to understanding the Xi revolution? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, when Xi first took power, most people didn't know much about him. You know, he was known a little bit in China because he was in charge of the Olympics, which of course were quite successful, the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Mm -hmm. But he was a, an unknown quantity, actually. And so when he came to power, I think people kind of thought he would be in the traditional vein of, of a Hu Jintao or a Jiang Zemin. But instead, from the very beginning, you know, he came into power in his very first speech in November of 2012. He said, you know, corruption, if not addressed, could mean the death of the Chinese Communist Party and the death of the Chinese state. And that really signaled, I think, to the Chinese people that this was going to be someone fundamentally different, because what he really wanted to do was to create a much more robust Chinese Communist Party at the forefront of the political system. And mm -hmm. the Communist Party had lost a lot of its ideological cohesion. There wasn't really sort of a center to the party that people understood. It was mostly a stepping stone to personal political and economic advancement. But for Xi Jinping, he said the party should control all. And so that, I think, really defines the sort of first moments of, of Xi's tenure, that focus on the Chinese Communist Party and rooting out corruption and that anti-corruption campaign, you know, is still going on today. And we're up to 3 million Chinese Communist Party members who've been detained and punished for corruption out of the 92 million Communist Party membership. So not inconsequential. Most, you know, leaders are able to go forward with ambitious agendas if they have a mandate to do so. Did Xi just create a mandate or was there significant enough support among key groups that enabled him to do what he did? I think he, he, in many respects, created the mandate and it was an attractive one to sort of enough people within the Chinese leadership that he uh, garnered the support he needed to push it through. And I think the mandate was really one that looked over the previous 10 years of Hu Jintao and Wen Zhebao and said, you know, this is a period where China had experienced double-digit growth. It had, you know, risen on the global stage, but it hadn't really capitalized all of its accomplishments. Somehow, its global standing did not equal what many people in China believe its economic accomplishments merited. And so she looked at that 10-year period and it was became known as the lost decade. And I think he stepped forward and said, I'm going to push for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, right? We're going to have a robust Chinese Communist Party at the forefront of the political system. We're going to have a People's Liberation Army that is capable of fighting and winning wars. And we are going to reclaim centrality on the global stage for China. We are going to return China to its former glory. The past 150 years are an aberration. And I think that vision was quite attractive to many people. So I think that's what he stepped into. But I don't think many people appreciated how he was going to go about that, right? And the changes that he was going to put in place, both on the domestic front and uh, in terms of Chinese foreign policy. Is there a measurement of public support for what he's done these past years in the way that, you know, Gallup surveys Americans and says, President so-and-so has a favorable rating or an unfavorable rating. Does that kind of survey research exist in China? Sure. There have been surveys that have been done, and the, the Ash Center at Harvard has a survey, but it only goes up to 2016. Mm -hmm. And most surveys that are done by internal Chinese newspapers, things like the Global Times, all of them record 
quite high support for really? for sleeping and, and the direction in which you're moving the country. You know, you may say that's not a an enormous surprise. I think it's important to recognize, though, that at sort of the base populist level, right, when you really go down on the ground, that anti-corruption campaign, for example, was enormously important because it really did contribute to delegitimate the Chinese Communist Party in the eyes of the people. You know, they were forever paying extra fees to local officials. You know, if you wanted your child to sit next to a heater in a classroom on a cold winter day, whatever it might be. So I think, you know, some of what he's done actually does resonate with the Chinese people. And I think his ambition, again, for China to step out on the global stage and be a global leader also, you know, is very popular within the broader Chinese populace. You've traveled to China, obviously. How has it changed since your most recent trips? I mean, is it palpable, the the leadership, the pride in the narrative? The transformation that's taken place within China over the past, you know, eight and a half, almost nine years of Xi's tenure, uh, at least for me, is most clearly seen in the constraints politically that have emerged. And so, the degree to which uh, you can have, you know, foreign engagement, for example, NGO activity, non-governmental right. organization activity in China, you know, that's dropped. There used to be more than 7,000 foreign non-governmental organizations operating in China, working on environmental protection, public health, poverty alleviation. Because of the laws that Xi Jinping has put in place, that's dropped to, you know, about 500. Wow. You know, if you want to engage with your Chinese counterparts, they're much more constrained in what they can say, right? I mean, at this point, you've got Xi Jinping calling for university students to turn their professors in if they utter ideas that don't uh, accord with party orthodoxy. So there's a, a lot more fear, I would say, in the foreign policy community, in the scholarly community about coloring outside the lines. And, you know, I, I termed this as sort of a collective depression of the creative class in China. Right. And I think it applies also to people in the technology sphere. You see what's going on now with, you know, some of China's brightest and best and globally most well-known people like Jack Ma of Alibaba or Zhang Yiming, uh, you know, who's the head of ByteDance, which, you know, founded TikTok, for example. All of these people basically are being cut off at the knees. Right. Before Xi Jinping came to power, the internet was this extraordinarily vibrant political space, right? right? You had people like Jack Ma having 50 million followers for their Weibo account. You had billionaires calling for political reform, for environmental action. Uh, you know, had the Chinese people going after corrupt local officials, calling them out, you know, on the internet. It was an extraordinarily sort of vibrant time uh, in terms of Chinese political discourse. All of that is gone. Hmm. You know, I mean, it was also a time when there were 180,000 protests on the Chinese streets in 2010. And again, 99% of that is gone. So it's a, a very different place, a much more repressive and oppressive place politically today than it was back in 2010 and 2011. We're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, but we'll be right back with more of our interview with Liz Economy. Welcome back to News Items. Liz, you wrote a great essay called China's Inconvenient Truth, 
And, you know, you describe a number of the challenges underlying the narrative of Xi as sort of all-powerful and the failing West and a rising East, etc. You say China's own society is fracturing in complex and challenging ways that, quote, have the potential to sap the country's economic vitality. Can you walk us through that? Sure. You know, it's important to understand that uh, just because we don't see things in China, you know, they don't, their media... (laughs) doesn't publicize what's going wrong uh, in the country the way that ours does. You know, we accept that we are polarized and we are divided. But when I took a step back and I started to think about what I've been seeing and what I've been hearing from my, you know, friends and colleagues in China about what's going on, I began to realize that actually China is every bit as polarized and divided as the United States. Part of that has to do, for example, with the treatment of women. It's really about the disenfranchisement of significant segments of Chinese society. And so if you look at what's happened to women over the course of Xi Jinping's tenure, they've gone from roughly ranked 67th uh, in the world out of 144 countries in terms of, you know, women's access to healthcare, the political system, you know, the economy and education to, you know, 109th. Wow. Exactly. You have a very vibrant feminist movement, but you have an enormous amount of online hate directed at feminists in China. That's not in any way constrained by the government. And in fact, the tech companies often take the feminists offline and leave the people who are spewing the hate online. So, you know, that's one example. I think we also have to be be cognizant of the fact that what's taking place in Xinjiang in terms of, you know, the enormous human rights abuses, you know, also there's Tibet, there's Inner Mongolia, there's what's going on in Hong Kong. In many parts of this country, there's an enormous sort of police state that has emerged that's basically designed to repress and control these restive populations. Well, what does that say about the Chinese government's ability to engage, again, significant parts of its own population in the political and economic enterprise of the country? And then the the sort of rampant inequality in terms of income and education. And we tend to think of the United States as very unequal in terms of wealth distribution. And indeed, that is true. But China's Gini coefficient, which is a measure of income inequality, is essentially the same as that in the United States, despite being nominally a socialist country. And roughly, you know, 40% of the people in rural China don't manage to graduate from more than high school. So the educational opportunities, the income inequality in the country, again, speak to the government's inability to engage people in a meaningful way. And so, you know, despite the fact that Xi Jinping touts the regime's success in alleviating absolute poverty, you know, as Premier Li Keqiang announced roughly a year ago, in fact, there are 600 million people in the country, about 40% of the country, that are living on $140 a month or less. So this is the China that I think many people outside the country don't see, right? Don't know about. Because what is sort of blasted out from the media, first from China and then beyond, is a lot of, you know, very positive reporting and accolades about the country's achievements. So I I used, you know, this piece as an opportunity just to say, listen, there are some things going on in this country that we don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to that in many respects could be a drag on the Chinese economy moving forward. It was a great piece. The demographic issue, I guess, is one other one that has gotten a lot of play and that the Chinese government seems incapable 
of addressing. And that's, you know, 30% of the country is going to be 60 years or, or older by 2050. And the working age population has already peaked. You know, their pension system, like the one in the United States, is grossly underfunded. Right. And their health care system is completely inadequate to the task of taking care of their elderly population. So, you know, here too, how the Chinese government is going to respond uh, to this challenge, you know, what they've done is simply to say, okay, we've moved from a one-child policy to a two-child policy to a three-child policy. Right. But the response of young families has been to have fewer babies every year since 2017. So right. we're now at the lowest rate since 1949. So I think they're not addressing the structural reasons behind the failure of people to have uh, babies. So I think these are just important reminders of what's going on on the ground in China. So the narrative of you know a failing West, the rising China, is, is an incredibly powerful one. Obviously, it binds a nation together into a great common cause. A big part of the narrative, obviously, is extending China's influence over ever wider territory. We see that in the battles over the South China Sea. We see it right before our eyes right now with what's going on in Hong Kong. But the one that everyone is talking about, and justifiably so, is Taiwan. How do you view the situation in Taiwan? So I think it's very concerning. You know, I participate in a lot of track to Zoom dialogues with Chinese officials and, and Chinese scholars. And I often ask them, you know, what is the path to peaceful reunification with Taiwan? And I honestly have yet to receive an answer from any of them, because I think that the challenge at this point is that so few people on Taiwan have any interest in reunification with the mainland. I mean, the conceit was always that through economic integration, through travel and tourism and study, that the people in Taiwan would gradually want to be more closely integrated with the mainland. That was never really true. Uh, you never saw rising levels of interest in Taiwan over time, you know, in favor of reunification with the mainland. But you could kind of maintain that as a fiction. I think, you know, China's treatment of uh, Taiwan over the past five years since the election of Tsai Ing-wen has you know, greatly diminished any interest on the part of the Taiwanese. And certainly what China has done in Hong Kong, basically not only crushing democracy, but you know, completely upending the promise of one country, two systems, has signaled to Taiwan that it simply cannot trust Beijing. So any hope that Beijing ever had of saying, you know, we can have one country, two systems, you can maintain your own foreign policy, you can maintain your own sort of economy, your own educational system, there'll be like some special federated system. Nobody in Taiwan believes that today. Now, you can't even get people in the Kuomintang, which is the party that traditionally has favored reunification in some form at some distant point in the future when mainland China is a democracy, hmm. you can't even get them to support one country, two systems at this point. And I think China's actions have also, you know, served to engage a much broader range of other countries in terms of thinking about Taiwan's fate and its future. So, you know, you have the UK sailing around now. You've got, you know, Australia and Japan and South Korea all taking a much greater interest in Taiwan. And of course, the US is encouraging this. Right, um, of course. Yeah. But I think mainland China has dug itself into a, a, a hole here with the way that it has behaved. So 
uh, I'm quite concerned about Taiwan and its future. And I think, you know, there's a debate certainly in the U.S. Uh, policy community over just how likely military action may be. I have read Xi Jinping's speeches, you know, closely over the past eight to nine years. And as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing more important to him than sovereignty. He doesn't believe that the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation can take place unless China is unified. And that means not only Hong Kong, but also the South China Sea and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that he'll be satisfied, you know, leaving office without uh, some form of reunification. So I'm very concerned. I, I tend toward the Admiral Davidson, of uh, former head of Indo-PACOM, said, you know, four to six years he could see China launching some kind of military action. And I, I don't think that that is out of the question. Right. I wanted to ask you, is there a Biden administration China policy? And if so, how would you describe it? Sure. I, I think actually the Biden administration pretty clearly articulated its framework for dealing with China. And, you know, in many respects, the threat perception is the same uh, as that of the Trump administration. And it hasn't changed uh, a lot of the language. It still talks about China as a systemic rival, as a revisionist power, bent on undermining the rules-based order. It's you know maintained many of the Trump administration policies like the tariffs and the very robust entities list, the same language around genocide in Xinjiang, you know, ramping up diplomatic relations with Taiwan. I think what's different is, you know, first, the Biden administration has started from the premise that the United States has to be strong domestically uh, in order to compete. And so I think together with Congress, you know, we've seen a significant emphasis placed on developing or ensuring that the United States retains uh, a strong technological competitive basis. So I think, you know, the passage of the recent bill to that effect is important in the Senate in addition, there's a sort of an emphasis on democratic values uh, that's come mm -hmm. out of this administration. That was shared by some people in the Trump administration, but not really the president. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that infuses our China policy. And then, uh, of course, working with allies. And here, too, the Trump administration was very effective in working with our Asian allies, but not our Europeans. And we've seen that already that we've had a very significant uh, uptick in the sort of relationship with the Quad, which is Australia, India, and uh, Japan, and the vaccine initiative, you know, right out of the gate uh, with the Biden administration is really impressive, I think, but also now working much more closely with the Europeans, doing the joint sanctions against China on Xinjiang, and now sort of setting in motion a lot of uh, technology cooperation uh, with the Europeans that I think could be quite significant. And then also in multilateral institutions. And I think this is you know, one of the really big differences from the Trump administration is that there's much more of an emphasis on traditional ideas about U.S. global leadership. And I think President Biden has made explicit the fact that the United States is back or is soon to be back. Uh, and mm -hmm. he's you know, rejoined many of the agreements and, and international organizations that President Trump withdrew from and even has, you know, proposed Americans for leadership positions in things like the International Telecommunications Union. Those are some of the, I think, big sort of framing elements mm -hmm. for the Biden administration approach. I think in, in terms of China itself, the message is really, China, you matter, but you come second to our allies and partners. You know, we understand the relationship with you within the context of our relationship with our allies and partners. We want to cooperate, but we're going to do so on narrow and targeted issues. So climate change or Iran or North Korea, 
um, Afghanistan, perhaps, you know, we want to have results. We're not interested in a broad strategic dialogue where we just talk and talk and talk and, and nothing actually comes of it. So I think that the message is really we're open to cooperation, but we're certainly not going to trade out core U.S. interests in order to bring you along. So I think it's a, a tough message. I've been impressed by the extent to which they've stayed on message, the mm-hmm. coherence um, in the administration. Uh, I think it's been impressive. I've been really impressed by Secretary of State Blinken. They haven't stopped moving. I have to say they, they have not stopped moving. And I think it's, it's helped, frankly, by the, you know, this is a group of experts across all of the different departments from defense to the NSC to state that have worked together for a long time and they trust each other. And I think that also helps in terms of delivering a, a really a coherent and cohesive uh, message to the Chinese. Do you work for a West exec as well? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very, very much for doing this. This is great. When's your next essay coming out? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> Please. I'm not your editor. I'm just asking, you know. And my next book is coming out. Um, oh, your next book is coming out. When is that? November. It's called The World According to China. Oh, wow. Fabulous. Okay. So so thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a million. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with Jerry Baker, formerly the editor in chief of the Wall Street Journal and currently editor at large there. News Items is produced by Christian Castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Simran Singh.